you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, New Testament book of Mark. Again, this morning we'll be in chapter 5, we will read verses 1 and 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can use one of our Bibles that are in the pews in front of you. This morning we will be in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. If you're a guest with us, we're working our way through the Gospel according to Mark, watching Jesus on the move, thinking about him as our king and what it looks like to follow him. We are in the midst of a very fun section of the book, and once again this morning we're going to look at a story uh, with Jesus in the graveyard, and we'll try to catch you up along the way if you weren't here last week. But with all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that's Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You might not have planned for this, but this morning we have some homework for you. I have a problem for you to solve. Seven plus six times two equals, oh, some of you are on top of it this morning. Now, I'm not here to teach math class. I'm not getting into this, okay? But not too long ago, problems like this were appearing all over Facebook. 
people were just sharing math problems left and right. Like, they get onto social media because they want to go to school. I don't know. I, that's not the reason I get on the computer. But they're sharing these math problems. And everyone responds to these math problems by typing in their answer in the comment section. And if you read these comments, it will just make you doubt everything about humanity. Our elementary school teachers are having existential crisis reading these comments because no one can get these math problems right. And the trick is, if you read, if you try to answer this problem the way you read it, left to right, you're going to get the answer wrong. In math, there is an order of operations. There is a procedure, a step-by-step -step process that you have to follow in order to get the right answer. In this question, you have to do the multiplication before you do the addition. And if you do the steps backwards, you get a totally different answer. Okay? If you don't know the answer to the question, ask your neighbor and they'll help you out with it. All right? Now, the reason we're going here is math is not the only place where there is an order of operations. And as we read this passage last week, we talked about how we ask the wrong questions when we read the Bible. And one of the things I want to show you with this passage is how to read the Bible. Not just this passage about the man with the, the demon possessing him in the graveyard, but any passage in the Bible. Now, we proceed to read the Bible the way people answer this math problem. We, we do it backwards. And so the normal way that we operate is we open the Bible, and what's the first thing we ask? How does it make me feel? What does this mean to me? What does God want to teach me? What do I need to do with this in my life? And when we start there, friends, we end up with the wrong answers. We end up with a backwards solution. Because when we read the Bible, there is an order of operations. If you weren't here last week, we talked about the first question in the order. What does this teach me about Jesus? That's where we start. And we saw that the power of Jesus is on full display in this passage. There's no place the power of Jesus cannot go. There's no person the power of Jesus cannot reach. There's no power that the power of Jesus cannot beat. And we have to start there. But when we follow the order of operations, there's a second question that we should always ask. After we ask, what does this teach about Jesus? The second question we ask is, what does this teach about us? What does this teach about humanity, about mankind? But we only ask that question second. Now, I want to ask that question of this passage. We've thought about what it teaches us about Jesus. So what does this passage with Jesus in the graveyard teach about you and me? And we're going to talk about three answers to that question. The first thing that this story teaches about you and me and everyone made by God is our universal worth. Our universal worth. Look with me again at verses 9 to 13. Mark writes, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs 
was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down into the steep bank, into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. When the Gerasenes, when the world sees this man, they look at him like he's an animal. They look at him like a beast. In verse 5, if you look it up at verse 5, Mark tells us that no one had the strength to subdue him. The word subdue in the original language is the word for tame. It's the same word that James uses in chapter 3, James 3, verses 7 to 8. James says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, can be subdued, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. So to the Gerasenes, this man in the graveyard is nothing more than another beast. So in their fear, they dehumanize him. He is less than human. And so we begin to make sense of the reaction when Jesus saves this man. They lose 2,000 animals to gain one. To the Gerasenes, this is a bad deal. This is a bad business deal. And still, today, when people read the story, we talked about this last week, one of the first questions they ask is, why did Jesus do that to the pigs? Why did he hurt those little piggies? Because we dehumanize the man possessed and uplift the pigs. But Jesus is the kind of shepherd that leaves the 99 for the one. In Matthew 10, verse 31, he says, Not a single sparrow falls apart from the Father. But he says, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Or maybe many pigs. When Jesus looks at this man, brothers and sisters, he doesn't see a beast that needs to be tamed. Jesus looks at this man and sees a human being created in the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is how we are made, you and I, and everyone who has ever been made. And because this is rooted in our creation, the image of God shows us our unique nature, status, and worth of every human being. Our unique nature, status, and worth of every human being. Brothers and sisters, we were created above everything else to reflect the glory of God. That's why you exist. And so we have a value in the eyes of God. Let's just start with you. Do you know how much you are worth? Do you know your value in God's eyes? This is a a problem that some of us wrestle with. 
feeling valuable, feeling worthwhile. Brothers and sisters, because you were created by God, it does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter what you've ever done. When God made you, he gave you value. He gave you dignity and worth. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, what we need to hear, brothers and sisters, is that this truth is not just for you and people like you. This is for everyone who has ever been made. It's for everyone you've ever met. It is for everyone you've never met. Every race, every tongue, every political party, criminal, saint, it doesn't matter. Every human being made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. How do you see people? Like the Gerasenes or like Jesus? James chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, he says, With it we bless with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Our world dehumanizes from the womb to the grave. But brothers and sisters, who have been made in the image of God and redeemed by Jesus Christ. We need to see and we need to treat people like they are worth. We need to treat people with the dignity and the value and esteem that they are given by nature made in the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean we just let everybody live however they want, do whatever they want to do, because people are truly worth it, because they are truly valuable, we need to point them to the truth. And the second thing that this teaches us about you and me is our universal problem. Verses 14 to 17, Mark writes, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The story moves away from the man possessed by demons and moves to everyone else in town. And they do not do what you would expect. Instead of celebrating this rescue of life, instead of worshiping at Jesus' feet, 
They tell Jesus, get out of my town. We don't want your kind here. The miracle happens right before their eyes. They see the full effect of the power of God on display, and they want no part of it. There's no revival just because Jesus shows up. Verse 15, when they see the man in his right mind, they were afraid. They're responding just like the disciples on the boat when Jesus calms the storm. They're more afraid now. Now, I want you to think, brothers and sisters, what this says about humanity. These people are more comfortable with the powers of darkness than they are the life-changing power of Jesus. They're more upset about losing their livestock business than they are about gaining a brother. We, in our world, like to think about people not just as made in the image of God, but as inherently good. That people want to know about God, that people want to know about Jesus, and they're just missing out, and we need to go tell them. And because they're basically good, when they hear it, they're going to respond right away. Friends, forget about the demons. Forget about the demon-possessed man. What does this reaction say about their hearts, the people in town? When Jesus gets off the boat, the man in the graveyard is not the only one in chains. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. As Jesus is pointing out, after he's told us why God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that the people loved the darkness more than the sun, that this is not a unique situation in the land of the Gerasenes. This is our universal problem. Everyone is created in God's image, but everyone rejected the creator who made them in his image. Romans 3.12 says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Because of sin, brothers and sisters, what happens in the land of the Gerasenes is our natural reaction to God. That's how we are now born because of our sin. Everyone, Mark tells us, by nature has worth, but no one by nature is worthy. Before we turn to the good news how Jesus rescues us from that, we need to sit in this. I want you to consider something for me. I want you to really think hard about this. Okay? Jesus gets off the boat, goes into the graveyard. There's a man who's a danger to everybody, makes life really uncomfortable. Demonic powers can't be contained, screaming violently night and day. And then there's a town full of people with good business, success, comfort, security. Now, which people 
would we be more comfortable spending time with? Where would we feel more at home? With the people in town or the man in the graveyard? The Gerasenes, brothers and sisters, I'm coming to our neighborhood, are not the only ones who have made their home in a culture that dehumanizes their enemies and outsiders and prioritizes their bottom line and their security. See, what happens with the Gerasenes at the root of the rejection, the reason they don't want any part of Jesus is, is he's ruined their business. He's ruined their financial security. They don't care about this man. They, they, they care about the profit these pigs were going to bring. It's about them. It's about their money. It's about their security. And so at the root of the rejection is a worship of self. They're, they're selfishly greedy to the point they don't want someone rescued. And so the man in the graveyard is not the only one oppressed by darkness. He's just the one that's obvious. James Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, James says, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's what's underneath selfishness. That's what's underneath greed. The same demonic oppression and darkness that chained this man in the graveyard. Friends, what does this say about people? What does this say about you and me? I hope you hear this if you hear nothing else because this is something that the church has shown they do not understand today. Discreet sins are as dangerous and as demonic as the obvious sins. The invisible are just as dangerous as the visible. Have we learned, have you learned to spot the darkness and fight the sins inside of you, inside of us, that are not as glaring and heinous as the world? We're really good. We are really good at waving our fingers and and telling off people who are doing things that are obviously wrong. But we are okay with pride. We are okay with greed. We are okay with selfish ambition. We are okay with selfishness. But Jesus says that anger is murder. Lust is adultery. The discreet is as problematic as the obvious. So our problem, the reaction the garrisons have shows us, our problem goes deeper than we care to admit. How do we deal with it? Well, religion looks at it from the outside and it just gives rules to follow, but it cannot deal with the heart. Friend, if you're just trying to to fix things with your religious performance, you're never going to deal with what's underneath the surface. 
But the gospel looks on the inside. It sees our heart. It sees this universal problem and tells us that God is the only one who can fix it. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And as James leads us, he, we are given an opportunity. We are given a chance to respond to the gospel. So the third thing that we learn about ourselves, about humanity, it's not just our problem, it's not just our worth, but our personal opportunity to respond to Jesus. Look at verse 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Let me ask you a question. When you read this story, which character are you? It's an important question to ask every time you read. But when you read this story of Jesus in the graveyard, where are you at? This is part of the reason we get so many weird answers and, and thoughts on this passage. I mean, some of us read it and we're Jesus. That's why we use this passage on like how to deal with demons. But who are you? You're not going to like this. But you and me are the demon-possessed man. And if you have any hope of being a Christian, that's your answer. And now if you're thinking, hey, that's a little extreme, okay? My life's not that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm not that messed up. Let's go back to Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Brothers and sisters, in order for you to see your opportunity, you have to see who you are before Jesus. You have to understand who you are before Christ can save you. We are oppressed. We are unclean. We are unable to break our own chains. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son where no one wanted to go, to the valley of death. He established his son as the true image of God that would reflect the beauty and glory of his majesty with perfection. And he was rejected by the ones that he came to save. And his son, Jesus, died for you and me on the cross in an hour of darkness. And he was risen from the grave in glorious light so that we could be redeemed. And he did not do it because of something that you or I did, but he did it to bring those created in God's image back to himself. To give them purpose and true value. Why did he do it? 
We continue in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of this great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And friends, just like this man, and just like this town that rejected Jesus, you have a personal opportunity. You have the opportunity to be brought back to life to be given eternal life. But the first step in that process is to understand who you were before Jesus met you. To see the sin and the darkness that it keeps you from God and life with him and to turn away from it. To reject that, to welcome Jesus into your life, unlike this town. To allow him to clean you, to restore you, to rescue you, to shine his light into your heart and to save you. And if you believe in what he did on the cross and in his resurrection, he will do all of those things for you and show his mercy upon you. Friend, you have a personal opportunity today. Receive the Lord Jesus. And church family, this is an important question for us. Who are we before Jesus? It's a question that we have forgotten. And it's vital for us to remember because, friends, if you don't remember who you were before Christ, you won't be able to live for Christ. If you don't remember who you were before Jesus met you, you're not going to be able to live for Jesus today. The man who's been redeemed asked Jesus, can I go with you? Can I get on the boat with the other disciples? I want to be the first Gentile disciple. I want to do this thing for real. I want to be a part of your ministry. I want to be with you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Go home. Now watch. This is the only person Jesus says no to. It's the only person in the passage that prays, that begs to Jesus, and Jesus says no. The demons say, can we go to the pigs? Jesus says yes. The town says, can you please leave our town? Jesus says yes. The man who's been rescued says, can I go with you and and be your disciple? And Jesus says no. This This is just for free. When Jesus tells you no, trust him. Doesn't mean you're wrong with him. It doesn't mean he's punishing you. It just means he's got a plan for you. Let Jesus say no. But this man, he has an opportunity. Once he receives God's mercy, he has God's mission. Verse 19, Jesus did not permit him but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Everyone else, Jesus is told to keep silent. That's because they're Jewish and they have expectations of the Messiah. This man is a Gentile and Jesus sets him free and he is the first missionary in the book of Mark. Now I have a question for you. It's important. You have to know who you were before Christ. Do you have anything to tell people? Jesus tells this man, go and tell them what the Lord has done for you. What do you have to tell them? What has God done for you? And here's the, the, the struggle for many of us. Some of us feel like we don't have much to tell. 
I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Basically always knew God was right. My parents taught me to love God. So here I am. Not much to tell. See, what's missing in that, we don't see ourselves as Ephesians 2 tells us, by nature, children of wrath, needing mercy, needing rescue. And so then when someone asks us about the hope that we have in Jesus, we, we stutter and stumble because we don't actually know. Because we don't see who we are. Brothers and sisters, if, if we don't have anything to tell, perhaps it's because we've lost sight of who we are. Or we don't have anything to tell because we've never been born again. If you truly cannot see yourself in the demon-possessed man and understand the darkness that enveloped you in your sin before Christ redeemed you, then Christ hasn't redeemed you. We have to understand who we are to have something to tell. Colossians 1 verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, there was a point where you weren't. But now you are God's people. Once in your life you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you have something to tell? And if that's our story, we should be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 66, 16, Come, friends, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. See the connection. If you've seen God's mercy, you are on mission. If God has given you a story to tell, it is your obligation, it is your personal opportunity to go home, tell your friends what God has done for you. That is our stewardship of the mercy that has been given to us. So who are you telling? And what are you telling them? Ephesians 5.8 for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So when you open up the Bible, it doesn't have to be Mark 5. You go home tomorrow morning and have a devotion. You open the Bible for Bible study, wherever it may be. What questions are you asking? Friends, there's an order of operation. I want to walk you through that with one last question. You can take these questions. I hope that you write them down. You can use these for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter if you're in Genesis 1 or in Revelation. You can use these every day of your life to learn more and to grow as a disciple of Christ. But you've got to follow the order. The first question we ask is, what does this teach me about Jesus? Second question we ask is, what does this teach about us as people, as humanity? But the Bible is a sword, and we don't use the sword for decoration. We take this sword out and use it for war. And so the third question that we ask is, after we've learned about Jesus and ourselves, how do I take these things and use them? How does God want me to apply these truths? 
How do we take these things in Mark chapter 5? Brothers and sisters, treat people based on what they're worth. Your greatest enemy is made in the image of God. Fight against the discreet sins in your life, not just the obvious ones. Recognize God's mercy in your salvation so that you have a story to tell. And then, go tell it. We ask these questions. We have so much to see and we have so much to share. Brothers and sisters, go and tell what the Lord has done for you.